What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Unstoppable REI Wealth. This is episode 47, and today I'm interviewing Ruben. Ruben's a fellow New Yorker. This guy has been fixing and flipping for years. He actually started cold coal knocking on doors at 13 years old. His cousin kind of utilized him as a puppy dog. I think it was either Queens or Brooklyn, uh, door knocking because the cousin was having a hard time getting his foot in, so the cousin was smart. He figured, let me bring this 13-year-old kid in with me, cute little kid knocking the door. Ruben opened up a lot of doors, made himself some money, and from that day forward, he was hooked with this whole real estate investing. He's gone on to do over $350 million worth of real estate um, since he, I think he's been doing it since like 18, 19 years old. But in the last four years, he has opened up a private lending bank, WeLend, and he's got some amazing programs. He has, uh, he's very aggressive with his underwriting, understands what it's like to deal with new investors, and he's doing it nationally. Uh, so you're not gonna wanna miss this episode, especially if you are wanting to get into fix and flipping or if you're currently fixing flipping and you need an additional private lender, WeLend, Listen, I just got to know this guy from the interview, solid human being, knows what he's doing, and he's open to working with seasoned as well as new investors. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Unstoppable Real Estate Investing Wealth. My name is Billy Alvaro, aka the Unstoppable VA, former billion dollar mortgage banker, gone bankrupt, turned professional real estate investor where each week you'll learn the tools, strategies, systems, and secrets myself and other highly successful real estate investing entrepreneurs use to start, grow, and scale their businesses, creating massive profits and how you can too. And we'll teach you how to put those profits to work so you no longer have to. Get ready to finally experience financial freedom and generational wealth. Now let's get started. What is going on, everybody? Billy Alcari, the Unstoppable BA, back in it with another episode of Unstoppable REI Wealth. Today, I'm bringing on a, uh, a gentleman who lives in my neck of the woods in New York. He's doing business in New York. And what I'm going to love about this interview is that he's doing and offering something that I get tons of questions on, right? When we're fixing and flipping properties, the, one of the questions I get often is, how do you finance these properties? How do you package it together? You know, is it possible to take on private lending and regular traditional lending? And so, Ruben, I'm going to interview you today. I'm hoping you're going to bring the heat, and I'm going to kill your last name. So I'm going to have you. <laughs> I'm used to that. So it's Isgalov, Ruben Isgalov. Isgalov. Okay, very cool. Welcome <laughs> to the show, brother. Appreciate you coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So you, you know, I looked at your bio, and you and I don't know each other. You, you're just coming on and meet you for the first time, but you have like a pretty cool history. You've acquired, flipped developed and or finance over $350 million. And since you wrote this, I'm sure it's probably more. So <laughs> it is. Through, give us a little background about you and you know how you became into this whole lending criteria. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do that. So, you know, we, we immigrated to the U.S. in the 90s, uh, like 1994, I believe it was, 95. You know, I was only six years old, went straight into the you know Department of Education system, um, did the best I can. But eventually, I was introduced to real estate right around 13, 14 years old. Uh, one of my cousins, who was actually a, a flipper at the time, was you know doing it the old school way, door knocking on doors um, and trying to convince sellers to sell their property to him. And he had a hard time people, you know, for 
he had a hard time opening doors, getting doors to be open. So, you know, he asked me as a 13 year old, he's like, you know what, you're, you're young, you're cute. You know, I, I think people are going to open a door for you. Why don't you come in and join me and help me? So that's exactly what we did for, for the summer. You know, I try to get as many doors as I, op- I, I can open for him. And that was my introduction to real estate. And I, I kind of fell in love. Um, what it was a gift, like, what a gift for your, your, your relative to do that for you, man. I mean, that oh, is absolutely. Training, killer training at 13 years old. <laughs> I think it was self-serving on his part, but I think he's a very smart guy to do that. But what a gift for you to have to be open absolutely. Up 13 years old and start knocking on doors. I mean, you probably yeah. had zero fear because you don't really know yeah. fear as a kid at that age. No, you know, no, I had no idea what was happening. Like, yeah, that's great, man. People were opening doors thinking that I need help with something, but you know, it worked out well for him. I think he put a number of properties in contract with that kind of gave me some money to just to kind of give me the motivation and the inspiration that I need. And for me, it was, it was over, right? For me, it was real estate all, all about real estate after that. But sure. you know, obviously I had to go right back to school Fast forward a few years at around 18 years old, uh, my brother started buying real estate in Florida, buying land, vacant land, building on it, you know, selling it and so on. And while he was doing that, I was actually a loan officer for, you know, one of these local mortgage shops and so on. That was the wild, wild west, you know, making mortgages. I was, again, like around 18 years old, making a killing. For me, it was the best time of my life. I was also a high school dropout. What was the years? This was, I believe, around like 2005, 2006. I was also like a high school dropout, didn't want to go back to school, thought that's not for me. That's when shit was really heating up. Exactly. You know, at that time, being a teenager, I I was making about 10,000 a month. It it was amazing. For me, it was just like, wow, I mean, this is going to last forever. And long and behold, of course, it didn't. You know, a few years later, everything went crashing down, Um, learned a valuable lesson at the time where you have to save your money. At that time, I really wasn't. I was spending it all. I was making and spending it, making and spending it. But eventually, you know, my father kind of sat me down and said, look, you know, you you could see that things go up and things definitely come down. And the question is, what insurances do you have to make sure that you protect yourself on the downside? So I decided to go back to school. I got my GED. I uh, went to St. John's University, got my undergrad, and then eventually went into law school, graduated magna cum laude, and kind of was was forever grateful for that. Although I don't practice at all, but forever grateful for that. Show. If you were practicing as attorney, I'd bar you. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, while while in law school and while in you know St. John's undergrad, I was buying, selling, flipping, developing. And, you know, shortly after law school, profit margins, they were they were kind of compressing. There was a lot of competition in the market and we needed to find a cheaper source of capital for ourselves, for our own projects. So we went out to um, to the West Coast to to an event that was happening, a private lenders event. And I was just speaking and interviewing with a lot of uh, hard money lenders at the time. And, you know, an attorney approached us, kind of took down our background, understood what we were doing and said, look, you know, you could be a hard money lender yourself. And this is how the process works and kind of gave us like a back of the napkin understanding of what what's necessary and so on. We had some capital at that time to work with. And, you know, we walked in there as private investors, flippers, speculators, developers and walked out as private lenders. And that was in 2018. And we never looked back since. No shit. Congratulations. Very cool. <laughs> Thanks. So two years old, three, four years you've been doing this full time. We're going on to four years now. You know, we've done a little over uh, a thousand loans at this point, lending nationwide. So you're doing a nationwide thing. So I think, you know, one of the things I could appreciate, I'm sure people for you, is that you have that lore background, but you have the investor background as well. 
And so Absolutely. you're not coming in just from a desk underwrite. Like you understand what it takes to make a deal, put a deal together and make a deal, make money. We're, we're super engaged with our borrowers. We want to make sure that, you know, we're not only bringing them the capital that they need, but we provide value that they are seeking. Because look, when I started flipping, I really didn't know much about the market. And my go-to guy, my mentor, till this day, he's my mentor, was my hard money lender. Don't get me wrong. He was charging me an arm and a leg. I, I think I was paying anywhere between 14 to 15% with, yeah. you know, two and a half to three points at the time. Uh, but it was well worth it. It was worth every single penny for me. But he was old school. He's still around. God bless him. Uh, but he was old school. No emails, you know, only phone calls, no texts, only fax machines. Wow. And, you know, for us, yeah, for us, you know, we thought that we can definitely change the bar- market and definitely improve on it. And that's exactly what we've been doing. But to the point of this, this hardware lender, he provided value to us. He made a lot of introductions for us. He told us where the pitfalls are, what to look out for, how to negotiate, how to actually renovate. And that's something that we took with us for life because that's what we see as a private lender. It's not only providing you know value in the sense of capital, but it's also providing value in the sense of guidance and being engaged with your borrowers throughout the entire project. Yeah. And that's what we bring on to, to, to every single borrower of ours. So what I'd like to do, Ruben, is I'd like to to do this interview in like two parts. I want to do both of the parts today, but I want to get into the nitty gritty on the start grow side for people who are getting into the flipping side. But then once we get into that, we get the details of what the lending programs are. I want to flip over and I want you to talk about what it took to actually get your lending arm started, right? How you went about doing that. Cause I think there's guys that are going to be listening to this that are at that level where they may want to open up their own fund or may start, they may want to start lending And I think being that you've been doing this now for four years, you'll be able to give them some really good insight. So sound good? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, happy to do it. So let's start with guys, new people, somebody who's brand new, right? They don't really have a a history of flipping. Is this somebody that you would lend to? Absolutely. So I would say, not majority, but a good portion of our borrowers today are first-time borrowers. They're entering the market because guess what? There's this bigger pocket effect today. There's you know, social media, all these influencers, real estate influencers, they're driving beautiful cars and, you know, with with beautiful ladies by their side. And I think every young uh, man or woman kind of aspires to to do the same and be successful. And I think there's a lot of new entrants into the space. Yeah. Um, Rightfully so. I think everyone needs to some way, fashion or form be involved in real estate for, you know, longevity purposes, right? To, To make sure that you have a nest egg to fall on. Uh, but to answer your question, absolutely. We lend to not only experienced investors, but also first-time investors. Now, we do that cautiously because there's a lot of pitfalls that a lot of borrowers don't recognize. You know, almost every single one of our investors who is new to the business and it's their first flip, you know, they're so eager that they actually miss a lot of the small little things that can become a very big thing and bring your deal from, you know, super profitable to a complete negative and you have to bring money to the closing table if you're selling or refinancing. Um, So we do take it cautiously. We guide them not only in the sense of educating them, but we also want to make sure that we as lenders are protected. So we may not give them the same leverage as we would to an experienced investor, but we're still competitive enough to make sure that they have enough liquidity to fund the deal. I love it. So let's, you, you hit a couple of really good points. Let's go into some of those things that new investors may not know what they don't know, but that they can get hurt with. Right. These are like really good tips. And if you're listening and you're starting to flip, you know, everybody looks at a deal and they think it's going to make a hundred thousand dollars. They don't take into consideration the buying cost, the holding cost, the selling cost. In my view, they always underestimate the rehab, they overestimate the ARV. And 
you know, you're off with a few percentage points either way and you, the deal's a garbage deal. And you hit it right in the spot. So I think those are the two common problems, right? Is they, they overestimate the ARV and they underestimate the scope of work. Now, a lot of our first time investors, they're not actually sourcing the deals themselves. They have wholesalers that are bringing deals to them and pitching them a dream, right? They're, they're saying, oh, this property, the ARV is going to be a million dollars, right? You look at the comps, there's nothing anywhere near a million dollars. It's just speculation at that moment. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's one thing. Um, you always want to be conservative with your numbers. And, you know, you obviously don't want to be conservative enough to a point where you kill every single deal that comes your way. But you want to be conservative enough to have a cushion worst case scenario. Now, to your point, you hit it right in the head. A hundred thousand. Right. When we were flipping small projects, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, our minimum uh, profit margin had to have been at least a hundred thousand. Now, it's not because we wanted to make a hundred thousand. I mean, who doesn't. Right. But it's because anything can go wrong. Right. Any of your scope of work budgets that you have today, you're assuming, oh, I'm going to put 60,000 into the scope of work and into the project. Guess what? You break a wall or you do something and you open up the walls and you find some other issues or, you know, the like 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 you see today, the values on uh, the cost of supplies have skyrocketed. Anything yeah. can happen during that course of time and you flipping. So your scope of work that was budgeted for 60,000 can very well end at about 100,000, if not more. So you always want to have that profit margin where if anything was to go wrong, you're still profitable enough to make the deal work for you and make sense for you. Yeah. The fudge factor, you have to add that in because things always go wrong. Absolutely. I don't know how many years <laughs> you know, so when you're looking at a deal and you're analyzing, new guy brings it in. Are you going to steer away a little bit if it's a larger rehab? Because you know what it is. If somebody gets into these large rehabs where they're going to, they're going to do a full gut on their first job yeah. down yeah. to the studs. They don't yeah. realize how many different things go wrong and they don't take into consideration all the budget items that need to go into it. So are you going to steer away from like new guy, full gut? So if we see a borrower buying a property for, say, hypothetically speaking, a million dollars and their scope of work is 30 percent or greater of their purchase price, we start questioning that. Right. The question is, can you actually execute? Yeah. Can you bring someone on board as a borrower to make sure that I can feel comfortable giving you a million dollars or whatever that amount is? Because guess what? On a $60,000 scope of work budget, a lot can go wrong. On a $300,000 scope of work budget, even more will go wrong. So, oh, yeah. you know, we caution every single one of our borrowers to make sure that they have someone that mentors them, that can bring this to the finishing line and make sure that they're executing profitability wise. Okay, so what do you look for in the borrower when you're underwriting? Are you looking for credit? Are you looking for liquidity, combination, experience? So as private lenders, our focus is always the asset, right? We want to make sure that, you know, the borrower, the, the property is profitable when they're buying the property and they're flipping it. We want to make sure that the property is vacant or not. doesn't really matter, but we just want to have that those numbers in mind and have those assumptions on our end. Um, so our real focus is the asset in the beginning. But then also we want to make sure that the borrower has a track record. And if they don't, that's fine. Um, 620 credit for us is excellent credit. Uh, we want to make sure that the borrower has enough liquidity to not only buy the property, but also start the renovation. Because when we fund the project to the leverages point, I don't think we even touched on that. But um, depending on the borrower's experience, we can go up to 90% of the purchase and 100% of the construction cost. That's huge. So, you know, essentially the construction doesn't come at the closing table. It comes in draws. It comes as a reimbursement. So, you know, to the point of liquidity, we want to make sure that the borrower has enough not only to bring the 10% down or whatever that, that magic number is, but he has enough to actually go ahead and start the project. 
uh, and pay our mortgage during the course of, of holding the mortgage. So it's just a number of things, but the focus really is the asset and making sure that it's profitable enough for the borrower for it to make sense for them. Yeah, assets always number one. After that, you look at everything else. Exactly. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Regarding uh, the loan of values and the 90, the 10, when if a newbie's coming in, and he doesn't have the assets in his bank account, would you allow him to partner up with somebody that does have the assets that's gonna come in to be that gap funder? So it's a good question. We actually don't look at the borrower's bank account, right? What we ask for is a personal financial statement, which is self-declared. What that essentially means is that if you put on your, your personal financial statement that you have a million dollars, I take your word on it. Now that's on the bridge for the one to four units. On the multifamily, when it's four units or five units or greater, we do want to see bank statements. We want to make sure that they have enough liquidity to actually execute on the deal. Now, a lot of times it's not in their personal name. It's in some kind of entity, corporation, LLC or what have you. And we want to make sure that, that we can tie them to it. So we usually ask for like an operating agreement, you know, bylaws or something to that effect to make sure that they are, in fact, you know, have the ability to tap into that liquidity uh, when needed. I'm surprised, though, Ruben, on the on the single family first time flipper, you wouldn't want to tie a real bank statement or some sort of assets to that person's name that you're allowing them just to do a, an income statement on, you know, yeah. their own. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, there's there's a lot of ways to look at it, but to answer your question, it's really because of the secondary market and the capital markets out there, right? There's a lot of liquidity in the space today. There's a lot of institutions, large institutions, right? KKR. Blackstone, Goldman Sachs that are entering into the space because they see the value and the strength in this space. So there's a lot of money being pumped into the space. Now, when we fund a loan, most of the time we end up selling the paper to one of these larger institutions that securitizes and does whatever they need to. So, you know, we're, we're looking at it from their lens. If they buy paper without having to tie the borrower to their liquidity, then we're OK with lending under those terms. Of course. Good. So I love it. So now let, let's look at somebody who is looking to grow and scale, right? Yeah. Guy's coming in. He's a producer. He's pumping out 75, 100 deals a year. He's in multiple states. Uh, he has systems in place. He has processes in place. He has his controls in place, project managers. For a person like that, do you offer any type of line of credit or anything that can assist him to grow his company as he's helping you grow yours? So, you know, I know there's a lot of private lenders out there that kind of market themselves as, you know, offering lines of credit. And I, I don't agree with them. It's, it's never really a true line of credit because it always has to be tied to an asset. The way I view, right, the way I view a line of credit is you can walk in, you could, you know, you have a $100,000 line of credit, you can walk in and you could take out the full hundred or 20,000 without having to answer any questions. So to, to your point, no, we don't offer lines of credit and we don't want to be one of those type of lenders that market something that is not entirely true. Uh, but what we always try to do is make sure that we can pre-qualify the borrower to make sure that when they are ready to execute on a deal, we can execute as quick as they expect it to be executed. Right. So a lot of our borrowers, a lot of times they need to close within a week's time. Um, sometimes even days. And what we can do to help the borrower to finish in that timeline is pre-qualify them in advance. So we go through their financials. We go through, you know, what their past experience was. We pull their credit so that when it's time for them to execute on a deal, they know there's not going to be any delays or hiccups. Got it. I love it. Good. So now take us through your whole process. New guy, seasoned guy coming in. What's the process to get the loan looked at? 
And then what are the steps thereafter to get it approved, funded, and then the draw process? Yeah. So, you know, well, first focus is the property. We do a property analysis on every single deal. We want to do, you know, an appraisal. We want a scope of work as far as what their budget and construction is going to look like. We want to know the occupancy status, right? Is it vacant? Is it occupied? We want to know the location. So right away, first thing is we look at the address, we go on Google Maps and we see the location. If you see murder in the building or in the property just a couple of days prior, we have a bunch of questions like, oh, what's going on here, right? Yeah. Uh, but let's let's face it. I mean, a lot of our borrowers today, they're buying in these tertiary markets where there is a lot of high crime and there's a lot of bad things happening. So we recognize that because guess what? We were in that same space as they were. We were buying properties in those type of uh, locations. But also we want to see what the current and future rents are. If it's a multifamily, uh, we want to see what the current future rents are. We also want to do a stress test, right? What would happen to the asset or to the borrower if, you know, a downturn is to happen in the next couple of months? Um, So we always want to stress test it. So one is the asset. Then is the borrower. We want to know what their exit strategy is, right? We want to know what their credit is like, what their track record is, and their net worth and liquidity. Normally, on a multifamily deal, five greater, we want to see a net worth of at least, say, 10 percent I'm sorry, uh, of the loan size. So we take all of their assets, all of their bank accounts, stocks, bonds, or what have you. We want to see at least the total loan size that we're offering them. And on liquidity, we want to see at least 10 percent of our loan size after the cost of buying the project and putting the money down to execute on it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. And so the process, they, they take a file, they send it over. Is everything online with your team or is it it's all? So majority of what we do today, you know, we have an office here in Queens and we have another office in Midtown. I want to say that there's a in, in the past year and a half, two years. I mean, obviously, COVID effect, but I, I want to say there was a handful of borrowers that I met in person. Yeah. Uh, majority of the time we do everything over the phone and Internet. Unlike my hard money lender back then. I do have an email address and I do take texts and so on. And you know, and so it, it's a little bit of a different perspective. But, you know, as far as document wise uh, from a borrower, a lot of it can be done online. You know, a lot of it is, is done professionally through title companies and so on. So we look at not only the title, we want to see the contract. We want to see if it's a refinance. We want to see a payoff from the existing lender. If there is any, you know, entity docs, photo IDs. And that's basically it. On our part, what would you say some of the pain points are for guys that are trying to lend? And I'm not saying with your company, but overall, like I, I know what some of my pain points are with dealing yeah. with private lenders, right? So yeah. the draw process for us with certain lenders is an effing nightmare. They yeah. put through the ringer in order to take down the money. And at certain right. points, I've had lenders where I'm like, look, I don't even need the money. If I'm not paying interest right. on it, keep it. Right. Making me, I'm like a circus animal. I'm jumping through these freaking hoops trying yeah. to get cash. Like, so what's your process for having drawdowns for the for the rehabs? So we recognize many of the pain points that our borrowers are experiencing. And one of the things that we're looking to implement very soon is having the borrower do the construct of the inspection themselves. So now what we're doing is we're having an inspector, one of our inspectors that we essentially hire to come out to the property, take pictures and send us a report. And it's time consuming. And a lot of times our borrowers don't agree with the report that the inspector had sent. 
we recognize that. And guess what? We hear the complaints. I always try to reach out to borrowers and survey them myself to see what they're experiencing with our company. And one of the things is, like you said, is the construction job process. So what we're looking to do very soon is actually implement a procedure where the borrower can do the inspection themselves through their phone. There's going to be a device, uh, an app that they're going to be actually downloading on their phone and doing the inspections on their own and sending us the reports on their own. So it's going to be a lot more simpler and easier and faster. And there's not going to be any dispute of, well, this was done and this wasn't done or what have you, because the borrower is going to be doing it himself. So I'm assuming something with that, it's going to be geocoded where they can't commit fraud. Exactly. Tell you exactly where they're at location. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's going to pinpoint them to exactly where they are. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. So what, what are the pain points your company, other companies do, do you think rehabbers are experiencing with lenders such as yourself? I can tell you right off the bat, first thing is track record. So, you know, we always offer leverage based on the borrower's track record. If they tell me they've done 10 deals in the past, I'll go up to 90% of their purchase price. But when I ask them for the 10 addresses that they've done, or at least, you know, send me five out of the 10. Yeah. I, I don't need all 10. Five is, is good enough for me for, for me to give you 90%. Guess what? A lot of times that five or that 10 doesn't exist, right? They're like, oh, but, you know, it's just a broker here. I wasn't really involved. I just kind of helped, you know, make the deal happen. And guess what? That 10 deals not only turned to five, but now it turned to one. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> or sometimes... <laughs> or sometimes none. And they're like, yeah, but I'm a licensed real estate agent or what have you. And we need to see a track record where they were personally involved in the deals. And, you know, as much as we express that to the borrower when they tell us it's 10 deals as experience, you know, sometimes it doesn't check out exactly how the borrower told us it will. And as a result, we have to reduce the leverage. Um, yeah. And that's the big pain point, not only for us, but for the borrower, because now, you know, they're on you know, under the gun for pressed with time to close and it takes us some time to kind of confirm that it's, you know, not 10, it's not five, it's only one. And as a result, it kind of creates tension. So what we always try to express our borrowers is, hey, be truthful, be honest, tell us exactly where you are, because not only will it make things easier for us, but also for you and for our relationship uh, for long term. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, if, you know, you can't bullshit anybody these days. Everything's documented. <laughs> There's a trait of everything out there. You know, world. Yeah, it's craziness. It's absolutely nuts. So when it comes down to, to making these deals happen, I just lost my train of thought for a second. I had a question. But when it comes down to, to doing deals with you, everything is just online. They submit the files over. Everything's on the written. You're good, right? Exactly. Okay. So I want to flip over to your, your, how your organization is structured. I know you said you have, you have Manhattan, you have Queens. What's yeah. your structure like? How many people do you have in your organization that are doing, you know, working with you? So pre-COVID, we were all in the Queen's office. We own you know, two buildings on the block, and we occupied both of them, right? Um, eventually, with COVID happening, a lot has changed. So what we've done is we've actually started hiring people um, offshores. So we have people offshore just collecting documents, communicating with borrowers to make sure that we get what we need to start underwriting the loans. Uh, so as a result, we were not only able to reduce our expense in terms of salary and cost, yep. but also make sure that people are working almost 24 hours a day. They're Smart. always, you know, one thing I can I can tell you is that people in outside of America, when you're hiring them, they value you. They, they want to, you know, make sure that you're happy with their services. Unlike some people here in the States where you're paying them 150000 a year and it seems like they're doing you a favor uh, by working. But 
essentially, you know, we, we have the team offshore, but we also have our, still our office in Queens where I and my partners are located. I, I live not too far, so it's very convenient for me. And my sales team is really in the city office. And when I go to the city office, it's very little work that can be done there because every salesperson wants to close as many loans as possible. So as soon as you walk in, they're like, oh, the decision maker is here. Let's get this approved. Let's get that approved. And as a result, you can't get anything done. So, so what we do is we work here in the Queen's office as partners and decision makers. Um, and our sales team is in a city office. This way, they're easily accessible to any, you know, to the tri-state area. They can go to Connecticut for an event. They can go to New Jersey for an event. Um, and so on, because they are located in the city. That's smart that you did that. Breaking up yeah. sales and operations is, is smart because we, I'm a sales guy. And, <laughs> you know, I know how it is. You're going to rush down the object, you're all over the place. And operations people, deal analysts, you need to be quiet. You need to think. You need to focus. Exactly. Exactly. No, I look, I get the salespeople. I was a loan officer myself back in, in the good old days. So I get it. They want to close as many loans as fast as possible. And they're always under the gun, just like our borrowers are. How many people do you have in your sales department? So collectively, offshore and in in the States, I would say it's about 18 or 19. So we have an outbound call center offshore, and we also have our loan officers here in the States that you know make sure that they're attending events, they're meeting with barbers face-to-face, and so on. Got it. And then on your operational side, what's the structure there? How many people? I would say about six people, uh, six or seven people. Um, A lot of them are just collecting documents. They're processing documents. They're making sure that they get what we need. And then the others are underwriting, putting the final stamp of approval. And then the other set is making sure that we're placing these loans on our lines or selling them in the capital secondary markets. So are yourself and your partners, are you at the point now where you're not looking at loans? You've kind of delegated the underwriting to your team? So... One of my partners, who's also my my cousin, he's still involved in every single loan. He makes sure that he puts his final stamp of approval on every single loan because, you know, a lot can happen no matter how well you train the people when it's not their money. They don't really take it as serious as much as I love each and every one of them. But when it's your money on on the table and at risk, I think you take it a lot more serious than, than the other person. So my brother is still, my cousin is still very involved in every single loan. I think that's smart. I mean, you need somebody on your team that's on the executive team to, to do a, a final review because they absolutely, get absolutely all the time. And he has an eye for it. You know, he's very good at what he does. He's very, very detail oriented. He's very focused and he can pick up on any small trend and say, you know what? This is a red flag. This looks fishy. This something just doesn't add up here. Um, let's investigate. Let's make that call. Let's let's send out that email or whatever it is. And and he's very good at it. So I'm very proud of how he's been working recently. And, and I think that, you know, with the way he's been kind of focused, it's going to help us grow a lot quicker and scale because that's really the key here for us. So, Ruben, this is tons of really good information for guys that are starting and guys that want to start to grow. I want to now get into how, because you've only been doing this for four years. How yeah. did you structure yourself to get in, to switch from acquisitions, sales, over to we're going to start a private money company overnight and launched this thing. Like, what did you do? Take us through the mechanics. Like the, what did you do in order to get there? So, you know, originally when we started, we we started as like, 
you know, as a joke, shits and giggles. Let's see if this works. Not as a joke, but like it was like a side business. Let's see if it works. We have a couple of couple of dollars laying around. Let's let's put it to work. And then eventually it just blew up, right? It just it, it scaled. Um, and because of our viewpoint at the time where we didn't take it as serious as we should have, we were always kind of trying to chase the snowball that was going down that hill because we didn't set up the right systemizations and foundation in place. Thankfully, with COVID, we were able to do that and set up the processes and, and systemizations and the technology that we need to be able to not only execute as quick as borrowers expect us to, but also make sure that we're protected on our end. Uh, but to answer your question, the way in which we really started is literally from our phone. We had a network of you know investors who were also our competitors in the space who yep. we always stayed friendly terms with, no matter what, you know, whether they, they took my deal somehow and kind of undercut me here, undercut me there, we're all still friends and family, right? So, you know, because of our ability to you know keep relationships ongoing, regardless of whether they were competitors or not, it helped us turn these competitors into borrowers. Um, so I always tell, you know, a lot of the people that ask, like, how did you scale? It was literally picking up my phone and calling my competitors and saying, look, I'm in the lending space now, and this is what I do. You know, I'd love to do some of your deals. I know exactly what you do. I know exactly who you are. I feel comfortable lending to you. Why don't you take my money? And, you know, it, it helped us because not only were we able to lend to them, but they were also influencers in their, in their areas, right? So they were able to influence their partners or their friends or their network to start borrowing from us. And ever from there on, it was just, we never looked back, but also, for us, a huge factor was social media. A lot of private lenders, like I said in the past, they, they're old school, right? They're, they're still in the fax machine world. Um, they didn't understand what, what social media was all about, but we were on social media from day one. You know, we grew our social media uh, tremendously. I think there's still a lot of room for growth. And, you know, believe it or not, I always say this every single time, we're, we're even on TikTok. You know, what private lender is on TikTok, you know, and I think just last night I was looking at it. I think we have like a little shy of 20,000 followers on TikTok now. Crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think it was not only the combination of our network and our good relationships with our existing, you know, borrowers uh, who were at that time our competitors, but it was also a huge part with social media. Yeah. So that explains the trajectory of how you guys took off. How did you how did you handle the back end on the funding side? Because I'm assuming you didn't come in with yourself and your family having a $50 million fund. So <laughs> no, no, no. Right. So walk us through, what did you do? You said you went to that conference and you, yeah. you know, you figured out this is the, the thing you want to do. Did you start utilizing warehouse lenders? Like what did that whole process look like? Exactly. So we had a warehouse line. We also had, you know, we, we've developed a number of relationships with institutions that were helping us in funding the loans where they would participate with some portion. We will participate in another portion. It was syndicating loans together, but also selling the paper. So not only were we, you know, fund the loans ourselves or with these syndicators, but we were also able to sell the paper relatively quickly, sometimes within, you know, two weeks. Now it's a lot quicker because our volume has grown. So we have to sell a lot more. Uh, but it was just a combination of those three things. Now, by doing that, you know, a lot of times we get this question asked of why would you do that if you had enough liquidity to to fund these loans and not have to syndicate it with other institutions? 
it was because we needed to, there was a learning curve. We needed to learn how to underwrite loans. So, you know, although we did have the liquidity to be able to fund and sell 100% of our paper, we still wanted to syndicate with people who have done it in the past because guess what? They were able to educate us on the process. So back then when I started flipping, you know, many years ago, I did it first as wholesaling because I needed to learn the space. I needed to learn how the panics work, what to look out for, what to kind of avoid and so on. And I did the same thing here. I crawled before I walked and walked before I ran. So that was the key for us. I love it, brother. All good stuff, good information. So listen, if somebody's out there, they want to leverage WeLend, how do they get in touch with you online? What do they do to start submitting files? They can reach out to us at 212-777-7780. Uh, they can shoot me an email directly at ruben at welendllc.com. Um, they could also visit our website, www.welendllc.com. And they could also go on any social media platform, including TikTok, and find us at WeLend LLC. <laughs> Fantastic, bro. Really appreciate you coming on today, Ruben. You've been Thank you, really. to the interview. Good, really good content, <laughs> good stuff to put a list. Appreciate it, man. Thanks again, bro. You got it. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Unstoppable Real Estate Investing Wealth. My mission is to give you, my listeners, the blueprint for success, the insider secrets for starting, growing, and scaling your real estate investing business so you can experience and live the unstoppable lifestyle. I've made it simple for you. To catapult yourself to success, go to billyssecrets.com. That's B-I-L-L-Y-S secrets.com. There you will find every single tool, tip, trick, strategy, system, and secret used to make millions of dollars as a real estate investor. Everything my team uses and my guests use all in one place for you to tap into so you can start, grow, and scale your real estate investing business. I really hope you implement what you're learning. I hope you utilize these tools, tips, tricks, strategies, and secrets, and I hope to see you on the next episode. God bless. Bye-bye.